Paul writes this in verse 5 of Romans 2. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render or pay to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism or partiality with God. So take the passage that we've just read here and let me add to it one other verse and go down just two verses and now read what it says in verse 13 of Romans chapter 2. There Paul continues and sums up in a sense what he's just been saying. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Looking at this passage, we have an object lesson here of why it is that we do not study God's word out of context when we don't just pick and choose certain verses or certain passages and let that thing, that passage or that word or that verse speak for itself within the overall context of what's being said in the word of God. Because if you let these words stand all by themselves and you were to read them all by themselves, you might be able to conclude that a person could earn their salvation by doing good works. Just live a life that is persistently patiently, with all the right motivations, mind you, with all the right motivations, doing all the right things. And this is the thing that is necessary to save you. Not just claim a belief in the right way, but actually fulfill it in your actions. And you can be saved because God will justify you on the basis of your good works. If you look at that passage, let it stand all alone. Just absorb what it's saying. That might be the conclusion that you can reach. It's a point of confusion and consternation when commentators come to this passage. They have to figure out how to reconcile it with what Paul has been saying. There are individuals who actually say, you know, Paul's just inconsistent. In one place he says you're saved by faith. In another place he says you're saved by works. You know, there's just an inconsistency because he's a human being and he doesn't get it right. And of course, one of the things those individuals don't believe is that this word was spoken by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God was revealing a truth that all of us must bow before and yield before. So what we need to do is put it into a context. So the first thing we need to know is that Paul is making an argument here that he began in Romans chapter 1. So take your Bibles and just go back to Romans chapter 1 and let's read verses 16 and 17 because verses 16 and 17 reveal the context of what it is or the argument that Paul is going to make throughout his whole book. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's his theme. The gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God, the way in which God righteously makes righteous the unrighteous, is what we said that meant. The way it is that God righteouses the unrighteous individual, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And now Paul, after saying that, is going to build an argument for why it is that individuals must be saved by faith alone. And the first thing he's going to do is drive home the fact that all individuals are steeped in sin. And then when he comes to the conclusion of his first point or his major argument, he draws it in 
in chapter 3. So take your Bibles and go over to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Paul now is, after having since made his argument in the last half of chapter 1 in which he reveals the sinful nature of and the sinful way in which society is submerged because they reject God and the revelation of God as the creator of all things and they worship the creation instead of the creator. And then Paul begins to speak to the moralist which we have been talking about and I'll refer to that in just a moment to show that their moralism doesn't save them. He speaks to the religionist to show him that his religion doesn't save him as well, that he's still under the law. Paul concludes in Romans chapter 3, the first half of Romans chapter 3, an indictment of all human beings. We'll look at that in just a moment. Then Paul comes to his full argument in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. In other words, what he is proposing that he wants to declare and point out to people in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, now he unfolds and says, this is our conclusion. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. This is the context, by the way, in which we have to look at the passage we read in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now we're in Romans 3. 21 through 26, Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. Now, here is how a person is saved. Here is how a person is regenerate. Here is how a person is made right with God. They're justified by God freely by His gift of grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or as an atoning sacrifice, through faith in His blood, by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And verse 28, let us read that passage as well, those words as well. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The context is an argument that you are not saved by the deeds of the law, that you're saved by faith alone in God's righteous provision in Jesus Christ. And that the context is also a contrast that Paul is making for us between what is produced by us in our own flesh and between the works that we try to produce in our own flesh and the righteousness that God would give us through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so now we have to go back to and just look at this because Paul is not simply arguing that we're saved or made righteous by faith but he's also making a contrast between the efforts to be saved by works and the salvation that comes by faith alone. And so now we're back in following the argument again. And we see this again developed all through the last half of chapter 1 where he reveals this sin. And then in chapter 2 where he reveals the position of the moralist who's still under sin. And then the religionist, that's the Jew, who although he thinks he has the law, so that makes him righteous, no, he is still under the judgment of sin. And then we have this conclusion that's reached in Romans chapter 3 that annihilates any idea, puts a nail in the coffin of anyone who thinks they can earn their salvation by being good, that they can establish their righteousness by their own moral effort. Paul reaches that conclusion and drives that nail in the coffin in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what he says in verse 10. You think you're going to gain your righteousness by your good works? There is no one righteous, not even one. In verses 19 and 20, he says this. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's also then why in Romans 3.23 he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is only this one way of salvation, by faith in the provision that God has made in the sacrificial atonement of his Son. It's the only way you can be saved because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no salvation to be found in the works of the law. So there is the context for what we've just read in chapter 2. You, when you come and read the verses that we're going to consider in verses 5 through verses 11 of chapter 2, we have to lay it within that context. Here's a further context. Paul has been, as we've been considering the last three weeks, he's been speaking to the moralist, the person who is judge the vulgarity of sin in other people and how wrong they are and knows the standard of right and wrong and appeals that they're a good person and a moral person. Paul has said to that individual, no, your judgment of what is right and wrong only demonstrates that you are accountable to God because you know what is right and wrong. But the reality is, although you make judgment of other individuals, in some similitude, you do the exact same things. You're under judgment. And he protests, oh no, but look at my life. My life is good and God is being good to me. And Paul answers and says, no, the goodness of God in your life was meant to lead you to repentance. God is being good to you because God is withholding from you what you deserve and giving you goodness in order that you would repent and turn to him. What you're doing is you are despising the goodness of God and you're also despising, Paul says, the forbearance of God because what God is doing is you deserve God's punishment but he's withholding that judgment on your life. He's not letting it fall completely upon you. And in the meantime, as he's restraining the worst that you deserve, he's giving you good things that you don't deserve. And you're interpreting it as, well, I've bought my way into favor with God by my good deeds and my works. No. If you continue to live in that way and you continue to have that attitude, he says, you're storing up wrath for yourself against the day of God's righteous judgment when it will be revealed and you'll experience that wrath. That's Paul's argument and that's where Paul's at when he begins these statements. In fact, look at verse 5 again. He's speaking to the moralist who has this attitude. This is the context. But in accordance with your hard hearts. What you really are is you're hard-hearted. You're, you're not a good person. You're not a moral person. You're counting on your good works. You're a hard-hearted person. You have an unrepentant or an impenitent heart. You're experiencing the treasures of God's goodness. But as you do, you're treasuring up for yourself. Wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. This moralist, you see, has been confronted with his own sins and the sinfulness of his own judgmental attitude. So here's where we have to come in understanding what we now read in verses 6 through 11. The moralist, you might say in a sense, has been put on his heels. He's put out his argument. He's protested on the basis of his own goodness, and Paul has rebuked his argument. He's agreed with what Paul has said at the last half of chapter 1 when Paul has described the defilement and the decay that's coming over society. He is himself indignant by the terrible way in which people behave, but of course he's different, and Paul turns around and says, no, you're actually very much like those that you're judging, and you're under judgment. Paul's words are very forceful, and they put this man back on his heels, and now that he's back on his heels, Paul is, you might say, going in to bring him all the way down, to bring to a ruin and bring to an end all of his confidence in himself. Paul will, as a result, take this man at this moment before the judgment seat of God and let this man stand as an individual before the judgment seat of God. Here, before God, he won't be able to hide himself in the crowd. 
here before God, he won't be able to identify himself as an elite privileged group that has known better and done all the right things and was more cultured and well-behaved and he won't be able to say that I was a good American. He won't be able to say that I was raised in a Christian home or that my mother was a praying woman. He won't be able to say any of those things. He's going to have to stand before the judge all on his own. And he won't be able to stand before the judge and say, you know, I had good notions and I had good thoughts and I had high intellectual ideas and I had lost aspirations and I knew what was right and wrong. I was discerning over what was happening in our community and I knew what was wrong with our society and he won't be able to say any of those things because that's not the basis on which he's going to be judged. He's going to be judged on the basis of his works, not his intentions, not his platitudes, what we did, what we thought, what motivated us, what we hid from view, what we didn't do that we knew we should have done. All of that, all of that is being recorded. All of that is being received and put into the ledger. All of that will individually be read before him when the books are opened before God he stands in judgment. Think about it. Everything you do in your life, in a sense, is rising up and being registered in the account of the divine judge. And one day you'll stand before him all by yourself, not in a crowd, not as part of a group identity, and you will answer according to the deeds you've done, and you'll be judged based upon those things. That's what's being said to the moralist. This man who thinks of himself as better than others and a good person, his goodness is enough to save him. And This is all really very sobering. This is being driven home to him. Paul is driving a dagger into the heart of his own moral pride and self-confidence and he's trying to bring it to an end so he can bring this man to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that said, particularly I want to look at verses 7 and 8 and we're going to look at a distinction that Paul is making and individuals who come before the judge. We'll see that there's two different individuals or individuals that fall in two completely different categories and the first thing I think we need to consider in order to understand the text as a whole, is this. We must consider that there are two points of faith that all people live by. They either live with a projection upon one point of faith or they live with a projection upon another point of faith. Every person faces down their death and looks to what rests for them and waits for them beyond death with one of two faiths. With one of two faiths. Either they put their hopes and faith in themselves, the bottom line of their own moral acceptability or moral accomplishments, the bottom line that somehow there's something that they've done. No matter what they've piled up in the wrong, maybe there's just one thing or one good thing they've done that will tip the scale in their favor and they base their hope and their faith on their own selves and the moral accomplishments. That's one point and that's one reference of faith. And by the way, that is the essential faith of every religion other than the Christian religion. That is the essential note of every false religion. It is a belief that somehow, in some way, in some manner, you can adhere to some principle and some idea and some behavior that will, over some period of time, whether it's here on earth or whether it's in purgatory or whether it's through some level of progression or reincarnation, you will ultimately be able to achieve in yourself the salvation that's required. That's one point of faith. That's the most popular point of faith. The other point of faith is the individual whose hope and faith 
rests completely and totally in the righteousness that is provided for him and accomplished for him through Jesus Christ alone. One person hopes in himself. The other person puts all his hope in Jesus Christ. The life that the individual lives will then reflect where they placed their faith and their hope. What Paul is talking about is God is going to judge the life that is born out of the faith that you have. The life you live will demonstrate where your faith was laid. And God will judge you, each individual, based upon the evidence of the life you lived, which will reveal the faith you held, what you believe. That's the whole point here. It will show up in the very deeds you do. God will test the deeds of people because the deeds will reveal where people had placed their hope and their faith. The individual will either turn in upon himself and grab some merit or worthiness in himself or he'll turn to God to deliver him. And as we've said already, this faith in self, this is the position of the vast majority of the population in the world. It's a position that is taught and coached and engendered by every world religion but one. A basic confidence in something you are or something you do or something you can assert or something you can rise to. It's faith in the individual and it's a faith that will gravely disappoint. So this is where we begin. This is how we begin to understand this passage with these two ideas, that there are these two points of faith. These two points of faith, the second thing we see here very briefly is they end in two totally different destinies. For one, the ending is eternal life. For the other, the ending is wrath and fury. For the one, it's glory and honor and peace, it says in our passage. That is a a wholeness, a completeness. For the other, it is tribulation. It's trouble and anguish, anguish forever and ever. There are the two destinies. There are two different faiths, two different destinies. And this is where I want us to spend our time now. These two points of faith produce two different outcomes of living. That's what we want to look at here. These two points of faith that will lead to two totally different destinies produce two different outcomes of living that God will judge and God will reveal. And so this is what we're going to consider in verses 7 and 8. So let me read to you verses 7 and 8 again and keep your Bibles open again. Here's what it says here. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Here's two different ways of living that are demonstrations. So here, there's an outcome in the manner in which the person lives. There's an outcome in the motive of their living, the motive that drives their living, and then there's an outcome in the product of their lives. And you'll see this presented here. These two different faiths that will lead to two different destinies produce these different outcomes. The outcome in how or the manner of their life, the outcome in the motive of their life, the outcome in the product or what is produced from their lives. First, the manner of the way they live. The individual who places his faith in Christ alone for all of his righteousness and all of his hope, which is the context and the argument that we have here in this passage. The rhythm that begins to be introduced into their life is a rhythm of patient continuance. They're marked by an endurance because they've placed all of their hope in God. They're not swayed by temptations and disappointments and tribulations. They may stumble and they fall, 
But they get up and they move on with their hearts resting on God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. They endure, they continue. It's the, it's the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4.8. He gives his own personal testimony in the midst of the trials and difficulties that he's facing. <laughs> the contradictions that he's facing as he's seeking to bring the ministry and the gospel to people. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.8, We're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We don't know what's going on, and this is difficult, but we're not in despair. We're persevering. We're continuing on. Our faith has been fully set upon Christ. We're not adding up all the circumstantial events of the day and saying this somehow is indicating and telling us where we're going and where we're leading because our lives and the feedback we're constantly getting our lives is the barometer of our success and whether we're really moving forward and progressing. No. Our faith is set in Jesus Christ who is seated in heavenly places on our behalf. And he's representing us before the throne of God as righteous in him. And we put all our trust in his saving work. And regardless of our experience here and the difficulties, our trust is in him. And we're living for the day in which he'll come to receive us unto himself. And we endure. We patiently endure. That's the cadence or rhythm of their life. Then he says this now. This perseverance is fed by a certain kind of motivation that drives their life. It says here they're motivated because they seek Glory and honor and immortality. Do you see that there? They're seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Let's look at what these three things are. These are the motivating impulses in the person's life who has put his faith in Jesus Christ alone. By glory, what Paul is saying is that they're seeking God. They're wanting the weightiness of God's reality to come upon their lives. Their whole aim in life is to be with God and to see God at work in themselves. He is all of their hope and all of their anticipation and all of their longing and all of their desire. The great vision that they have of heaven is not some safe place where they escape pain and they find the fulfillment of all their pleasures. The great vision they have of heaven is it's the place where God is. It's where they can see God and they can rejoice in God and they can be in His presence. Heaven is a place where you get what you wanted in life. If you wanted God, if you wanted God, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get him because that's what heaven is. Hell is a place where you get what you wanted in life. If you wanted basically yourself, your own effort, your own trial, your own provision, your own boast in yourself, that's what you'll get. That's hell. But here is an individual who is motivated above everything else by the glory of God. They put all their hope in him. They seek all of his glory for their lives, not only now, but in the future. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. There are many passages and verses we could read to illustrate this. Here it says, But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, this is the description of the Christian life, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The life of the believer is one who is being drawn into a life of holiness and into a godly life and a Christ-like life because, not because they have an eye on their works, we all beholding in the mirror our good works and our good deeds and our effort to prove how worthy we are are being transformed. No, (laughs) it won't work that way. It goes in the opposite direction. We are gazing upon the object of our faith and all of our hope, which is Him. As we gaze upon Him by faith, trusting in Him alone and not in our own righteousness. The wonderful thing is we're conformed more and more into His righteousness. 
And we long to go to heaven where we will see his righteousness fully displayed before us. And oh, that will be glory for me. That's the idea. Here it also says by honor. Here it says they seek glory and they seek honor. He doesn't mean they're seeking the honor of people and the praise of people. And they're not seeking the honor they can give themselves so they can think better of themselves. You know, the real problem in your life, you just don't have a, a good enough self-esteem. You don't think well enough of yourself. And actually, no. The problem with a person who's wallowing in poor self-esteem or the person who's arrogant is both of them think too much of themselves. One thinks, I should be better than I am because I really, deep down inside, should be appearing and people should know me and see me as a wonderful person. And the other person is under the delusion that's how people see them, how they see themselves. But both of them are thinking too much of themselves. They're seeking the affirmation of others. No, this individual is seeking the honor that comes from God alone. Actually, the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said that the desire and pursuit of honor from others or even wanting to please yourself is contrary to a life of faith. He said to the Pharisees, I don't know how you can believe and give honor one of another when you don't seek alone the honor that comes from God. This here is a desire to seek and know the honor that comes from God. The Bible says that when we come before the judge and the judge receives us unto himself, his response to us at that moment will be, well done, thou good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of the Lord. And you know, that's what we want. That's the motivating desire. God, I want to please you. I want to satisfy you. My eye is on you. My hope is in you. And I want to live the rest of my life in the joy of your joy. In the pleasure of your pleasures. That's what I want. I want to please and satisfy you. The next thing it says he seeks immortality. And the word here for immortality is actually incorruptibility. What it means is they want to live in a pure and perfect state where they are beyond sin and beyond all its defilements. They want to be shed of their sins. I've said this before, that before a person comes to Jesus Christ, they have a sin problem. It's holding them in bondage. After you give your life to Jesus Christ, all those sins are washed and forgiven, but what happens next is you have a problem with sin. You hate it. Every word that it presents itself in your life, you hate it and you long to be rid of it and shed from it. You long for the day in which you'll be in its presence and you'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. You want to be pure, and undefiled in every way and that's the longing that's in their heart. That's the promise by the way they've embraced when they believe in Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about that promise and that hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 52 through 54. Here's the hope of the believer. Here's what he's longing for. He's longing for that day. Well, let's go back to verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The person who has put all his faith and trust in Jesus Christ wants not only to somehow get on the other side of death so they can just enjoy themselves. They want to be victorious over them completely. They don't want it to be every residue of the decay of sin to be removed from their lives. They want 
incorruptibility and perfection that only Christ and the purity that only God can bring to them and give them. That's what motivates them. Now, remember, Paul is speaking to the moralist. And Paul is saying to the moralist, this is the spring that prompts the life and motivates the action of a person who has found the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ alone. This is the motivating spring that rules the person or individual who has received or is ready to receive the eternal life that God will give him one day. What I have to ask for you moralist, you who have puffed yourself up and thought you're better than others and you're going to win your salvation by your good deeds, can this be said of you? Is this what is said in your own life? Is this what is behind all of your moralistic ways of living? Are you, above all things, motivated by a desire to glorify God? Is your great motive a desire to live in the pleasure and delight of God? Is your great desire to be before God pure in every way with the purity of his own life radiating through you? And the moralist knows it's not. It's impossible that it can be because the moralist has put his faith and is resting his look upon himself and his own efforts and his own labors and placing it in his own personal attainments and development. The fact is, they bristle at the suggestion that they're not good enough and they can't be good enough to earn their own salvation by their morality. Look at the manner in which the moralist lives. Look what he says here about the moralist. Instead of patient continuance as the rhythm that marks the life of this individual, his life is marked by a rhythm of, in verse 8, self-seeking. Self-seeking. Now, the root of that word is actually a little different. It's been translated self-seekingly, but it's actually not a verb. It's a noun. And the noun basically implies that it's a life lived out of a mercenary spirit. It's a person who's haggling for their pay so that they'll fulfill their duties. I'll be a soldier. You pay me. I'll be your soldier. It actually can be translated as a factuous or contentious spirit. It's a person who wants independence from God, but at the same time wants to get what they think they've earned. Does not want to come under the word of God. Doesn't want to come under the demands and the way of God. Remember what Paul has said about all men. It says in verse 18 of chapter 1, when Paul speaks of this gospel that's coming, then he puts it in light of the situation of all people. It's coming to people and they'll need this gospel because right now he says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The moralists, like everyone else, they're pressing God away from their lives. They're not wanting to engage the truth that God is speaking to them. And at the same time, they're haggling over their good deeds as the basis of their salvation. I know I've been good enough. I hope I've been good enough. I've done this and I've done that. Fyodor Dostoevsky tells the parable of a cruel woman who was sent to hell. And while she's in hell, she appeals to St. Peter that she actually deserves to be in heaven. She's done some things that merit her being in heaven. He asks her to give her a reason why she should be in heaven. And she says, well, cruel woman says, well, there was a time in my life in which she thought through her life and she realized there was a time when I gave to a beggar a carrot. So the records were reviewed and certainly enough, there was this old wilted, rotting carrot that she did give to a beggar at one point in time and so a decision was made a string would be tied to the carrot the carrot would be lowered down to the floor of hell she could take hold of it and she could be pulled up out of hell into heaven the carrot comes down she grabs hold of it other individuals in hell see her 
grabbing hold of the chariot and rising up from the floor of hell. And they come and they grab hold of our ankles, hoping that they too, on that merit, on that action, can be pulled up out of hell into heaven. And as she's being pulled up, the carrot starts to give way because of the weight of those who are being added to this carrot that's being pulled up. And she screams out with all of her might, let go of me, this is my carrot, not yours. She plums back to the floor of hell. Dovsky knew that's the parable of the person who's seeking to save themselves by their own good deeds, by their own work. That's the sum total of it. You add it up. Just a carrot here, a carrot there, a work here, a work there. Done actually for their own salvation. May have looked good. May have looked quite altruistic. Done to prove themselves. Prove their virtue. Save themselves. It won't work. It won't count. Here's another thing we see here. That motive, that self-seeking or contentious motive, and by the way, you see this contentious motive because the next thing you see is that you might say the motivating spring that motivates their life. The rhythm is this self-seeking rhythm, this mercenary rhythm in their life, but then also the thing that motivates their life, it says is they're actually opposed to the truth. They're motivated by proving God wrong, taking a different position. They don't like to hear a suggestion that they can't save themselves. They revolt from it. They're under revolt. Their lives, they're motivated by a rebellion against God deep down inside. Even if they try to prove themselves good, there's a rebellion within them. It says they do not obey the truth. They're contending against God. I thought of a number of illustrations of this. This has come apparent to me many times when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. When I was a very young pastor, we lived in what was the parsonage. It was out in the countryside on the grounds of the church. There was a lady that lived along our property line where we lived who had a a row of roses and she was always out taking care of her roses. She went to another church in the community and she always spoke to me with profound sanctimony. She had this kind of dripping, wet language of, of reverence towards me. In fact, she always referred to me as parson. I lived in the parsonage and I was parson. It's kind of like reverend. Oh, reverend, it's so good to see you. But it's a parson, it's so good. So she spoke to me like this all the time and, well, I, you know, spoke to her like I didn't act any differently and I'd speak with her and visit her and one day I was visiting her over the roses we were getting ready to go on a long vacation and so I was maybe asking her to keep an eye on our home and oh certainly parson I'd be happy to do that for etc anyhow the conversation went and she made some comment about everybody being a good person and and she wanted to help me and, and do what good she could do for me and I said well actually the reason that we need Jesus to be our savior is the Bible says we're not good the Bible actually says God's word says that All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And she responded to me in a way that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Because prior to this, as I'm telling you, all I heard was the sanctimonious voice. But she said at that moment, oh, I don't believe that. But it was actually very dark and sinister sounding when she said it. Like a total revolt against the idea. I didn't abandon that conversation. I said, well, I think there's more that we should talk about. Can I come by and can I visit you this afternoon and your husband? She was the church-going one. Her husband wasn't at all. He was considered to be the the wild rebel from his family. And so I went to visit her. She was an elderly lady and her husband. And there I shared the gospel with him. And you know what I found? He was listening. He was sympathetic. He was responsive. His eyes began to fill with tears. But she would have none of it. She wouldn't listen to any of it. The suggestion that she was not righteous in herself that her good works were nothing to God, that they were filthy rags, and that she needed the righteousness only that Jesus Christ could give, she wouldn't hear it. Interesting story. We left the next day on vacation. I came back three weeks later, and, uh, well, while he'd been talking to her, I noticed she had a bit of a cough. 
Well, the day after I left, she went to see the doctor and they discovered that her lungs were filled with cancer and she actually died before we returned from our vacation. I hope and pray the message and the word that was given to her at the time somehow penetrated through in the last moments of her life and she put her faith in the Lord Jesus alone. On another occasion, I was in South America and I was speaking to a man that was insisting that he was a good person, that he didn't really have any sins in his life, although it was quite evident and anybody who knew him, in fact, I was with his friend and his friend knew him, and so his friend was reminding him of things that he did that weren't particularly not on the up and up, but he was holding to his own integrity and what he was doing and what a good person he was. And then he said, well, listen, even if I'm a little sinner, I don't need Jesus because I've done enough good things. And even if I'm a little sinner, you can look at my wife. My wife is a saint. She certainly is going to heaven. She does all the right things and good things. We were just having a conversation with him, but since he pointed to his wife, who was sitting across the room, I decided to include her in the conversation. And so we began and continued this conversation in which we shared the gospel, which begins with an understanding of how utterly sinful we are. And so I asked her if she knew and considered herself to be a sinner, and she said she did. I asked her what did she do that convicted her of sin, and she shared some things that she knew were sins in her life. We began to look through these passages that we just looked at in Romans chapter 3. They give a description of the heart and the human heart without the cleansing power of Jesus Christ and what God sees in our heart. We read it together. It's Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18. You can read it later and we read through it. And I, I said, can you identify with this in your own life? And she said she could. I explained to her how Jesus had died first. I turned my attention away from him. I turned it to her. I thought, let's lead this saint, this perfect wife to Christ and see what it does for the husband came to the end of our dialogue with one another and asked her if she would like to confess her sins and repent and ask Jesus to be her savior from all of her sins and she said she wanted to and she began to bow her head to pray with me and at just that moment the husband moved over close to his wife and he put his arm around his wife and said my wife doesn't need to pray this prayer my wife is a good person as she is she doesn't have to make this decision give herself to Jesus God will accept her because she's a good person and she's not going to pray this prayer well who am I to argue with him? I just said, well, listen, all of us one day will stand before God and have to answer for ourselves. You included, your wife included. I'll leave you alone for now. But these are decisions individually you will have to make now before you come before the judge. And I left him at that. We walked away. But do you see? There is in the heart of the individual who thinks that I'll save myself. What motivates that? Ultimately, what motivates it is they are in opposition to the truth of God. They're opposed to what God is saying. The Bible says that the Spirit right now is working in all people to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. You're a sinner. You lack the righteousness required to be in God's presence. You are facing judgment. And the Bible says universally, that is what the Holy Spirit is bringing to bear upon the conscience of men. And they're not in agreement with it. They're trying to find a loophole. They're trying to prove that I'll live a different way. And so their life is lived in defiance of what God is telling them to prove that they're righteous. The outcome of all this is this. What does this life that's produced by putting all of our faith in Christ as opposed to a life that puts our confidence in God, what does it produce? Well, for the one who puts his faith in God and looks to Jesus Christ, Paul says the life produces this perspective, this motivation and this perspective produces a life of good works. Wonderfully. When you say, I'm not saved by good works, I'm saved by Christ alone. And I'm looking to him alone to glorify him and honoring. The wonderful thing is that it works. It produces good works. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved to them. And when you put your faith completely in him, it produces within you, it generates within you by his own power, by his own grace, by his own life, a life of good works. On the other hand, you put your faith in yourself. You stand behind your own ability to save yourself on your own terms. You have to suppress the truth of what the word of God is saying. You have to suppress the truth of what the spirit of God is contending in your own heart. You ultimately have to live in opposition to the truth. You bristle at the thought and suggestion that you're a sinner under God's judgment who can't save himself. You'll find yourself as you go further and further along, I'll save myself by my good works. You'll find yourself instead of doing good works, you'll find that the product of your life is that you obey unrighteousness. That's what it says. You obey unrighteousness. Here's an interesting thing. I want to be free of God. I want to prove that I can do it myself. And you become a slave to sin, the Bible says. You become a slave to unrighteousness. The very impulse to be free from God and free from God's grace and free from the righteousness that God would freely give to you and prove yourself worthy in yourself will introduce you into a passage of life in which you become increasingly more and more a slave of unrighteousness a lackey to the impulses of your own flesh, your self-righteous flesh. So here's the conclusion to all we're saying here. The trajectory of believing in your own self-salvation by being good enough, righteous on your own terms, in your own moral power, is to become little by little prejudiced against the truth of God, become more and more opposed to the truth of God. God says you're not righteous in yourself. And your attempts to prove him wrong will only sink you further and further into judgment and you will become bound to obey unrighteousness and you're destined for hell. That's what's being said to the moralist who's writing in his own moralism. But place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and a different pattern takes hold of your life. He gives you his life through faith. He gives you by his life a persevering faith in him. He gives you, by his own nature, an impulse for himself, for his glory, for his delight, for his purity. You want all of that all over yourself. He leads you into a life as a result that you can't produce on your own. He leads you to live a life where you, not in your own works, produce a work that he performs in you. This life that turns away from works. Works. (laughs) That's the amazing thing. This faith that says, not in myself, finds in yourself the power of God at work in you by faith. How wonderful, how profound, how glorious, how counterintuitive to the flesh. Because the flesh is all about self. And faith is all about Jesus and God and his glory and his honor. I have to say one other thing here. If this is all true, this kind of novel new idea in North American Christianity that you can be a person of true faith in Jesus Christ and it not be seen in your behavior is thoroughly unbiblical. It's not biblical at all. Quite the opposite. That changed life, those good works that are produced because of your faith in Him and because as you're looking to Him, He projects His own life upon you and empowers you. And you work out your salvation in fear and trembling because you find that it's God that's working in you, both to will and do His perfect will. That changed life. Those good works 
will be the evidence before the judgment seat of Christ when you stand before the judge that all of your faith was in him alone for your salvation. So let them speak. So let them speak. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let us not be confused, O God. Not one thing we do, not one work we produce brings us salvation. Let us not be confused. Our salvation comes when we give up on ourselves and any hope that we can present to you anything worthy and acceptable. And we repent of our efforts to be free from you by our moralisms. And we put our eyes upon you and we trust in you and we believe in you. Dear Jesus, receive from you what we can't accomplish for ourselves. Let us not be confused. This is where our salvation lies. But also, oh God, confirm by that look, this truth and this promise that as we look to you, what rises in us is the fragrance of our Savior pouring his life upon us as we live for his glory and for his honor and for his well done and for the incorruptibility of his own being washing over us and filling us with himself. God, to be captive to you in this way is to be free and be offered up to ourselves the boundless, unlimited joys of eternity. But God, to be misers of ourselves, to earn our own salvation, is to bring ourselves into tribulation and anguish forever and ever. Dear Jesus, may we be a witness by our lives of the transforming power of the gospel. Give us boldness to see and speak in these ways, to recognize the pathway that people take trying to prove themselves and the vanity behind it and the futility of it so we might offer them the life that comes through Jesus Christ alone. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.